welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Mary T. Hannon, a law student at DePaul University College of Law. We will discuss her article, The Patent Bar Gender Gap, Expanding the Eligibility Requirements to Further Inclusion and Innovation in the U.S. Patent System, which is published in IP Theory. So welcome to the show, Mary. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, I really uh, enjoyed reading your paper. I'm glad that my friend Sarah Burstein alerted me to it. And I'm very excited by all the attention that it's gotten. It looks like it's going to have uh, a real impact, which is especially cool, given that it's a paper you wrote uh, as a student, but I assume based at least to some degree on your personal experiences. So maybe you could say a little something about yourself and sort of how you became interested in this subject. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a student at DePaul University. I'm a 3L this year, so I'll be graduating in May. Um, but I've been working as a patent agent for the past, well, I guess, I guess I've been registered for the past two and a half years or so. So, you know, I'm new to the new to the profession. Um, and before that, I was working as a technical specialist. So basically doing the same job, but just not registered as a patent agent yet um, for about a year before I started as a patent agent. Um, and then before that, I worked in industry as a chemist um, at a chemical company uh, for a couple of years. Um, and prior to that, I had gotten my master's in chemistry. So um I just, I think I became interested in this primarily was just, I sit on, you know, my firm's diversity and inclusion uh, committee, and we just talk a lot about um, how to make our teams more diverse and meet uh, the demands of various clients and things like that. So um, I just, from sitting in those meetings and sitting in, you know, listening to other people talk about diversity within law and within IP law specifically, um, I just really kind of got sick of the blaming the pipeline excuse is like the only way we can solve this, these problems of diversifying the field is getting more women in from the from the start, which is absolutely um, necessary. But I, I, I was thinking there's like people are out there that can do this job um, and we need to think of other ways to get them these opportunities other than just saying, oh, well you know, throw our hands up in the air. And until, you know, there's as many women in STEM education as there are uh, men, you know, these issues are unsolvable or uncrackable. Um, so I just tried to think about this from a different perspective, uh, looking at the USPTO's requirements and um, kind of going from there. So Mary, for listeners who might not be members of the IP law community or specifically not people working in the patent field, maybe you could say a little something about what the patent bar is, why it matters, and how you go about becoming a member of the patent bar. Sure. So the patent bar refers to all of the people who are registered and recognized to prosecute patent applications in front of the Patent and Trademark Office. So the U.S. system's unique in that it offers this ability to people who are not attorneys. Um, and those people who are not attorneys who, who are recognized are called patent agents. And once you become an attorney, you become a patent attorney, of course. So in order to do that, you have to uh, establish that you have command of science and technology issues. Um, and to do that, 
you have the patent office requires that you satisfy one of three different categories to establish your uh, technical expertise, we'll say. Uh, the first category is category A, which uh, lists a whole bunch of different degrees in which if you have an undergraduate degree in one of those um, programs, and it's chemistry like mine um, or biology or en various engineering subjects, then you'll be automatically qualified to become a patent agent or a patent attorney. Uh, then the second category is category B, uh, which is if you don't have one of those specific degrees from category A, you can demonstrate that you have uh, scientific expertise by showing that you've taken a number of different, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, science courses. So whether you've taken X number of credits in physics or X number of credits in chemistry or biology or things like that, um, that's how you demonstrate your expertise. The third is category C. And from what I know, this is a very rarely used uh, to become a registered patent practitioner, uh, but that's by passing an engineering exam. I forget the exact name of it, um, but the I think fundamentals fundamentals of engineering, I believe the FE exam, which is offered state by state, um, and from what I know, very few ever qualify through this uh, pathway. Most are through category A or category B. Mm -hmm. Well, so in your paper, you argue that these qualification requirements for taking the patent bar have a sort of de facto discriminatory effect against women. Why is that? Well, I think that these, you know, I think that the requirements are just simply outdated and really focus on, you know, they're heavily focused on chemistry, physics, um, mostly chemistry and physics, to be honest, which are so heavily dominated by men. Um, people who ob obtain those degrees are high, it's, you know, men are very dominant in those fields. Um, so I think that it doesn't really embrace the sciences that women are more likely to go into. Um, and, you know, that's whole, because of a whole lot of reasons, societal and everything like that. Um, you know, there's a lot of obstacles preventing equal representation of men and women in STEM fields um, from the very beginning. So, but I think that these requirements are so uh, stringent that um, just they unnecessarily exclude some other degrees uh, as unqualified to practice patent patent law, uh, but without really any real, you know, clear um, consistency between the, between the different degrees. Um, so for example, I mean, some of the degrees on there uh, not to bash any of the category A degrees, of course, but some of them on there are, you know, textile engineering, which is, I imagine, is a very esoteric degree that not significant number of men or women ever get. But, you know, if you kind of look through uh, different uh, undergraduate programs and what what a curriculum um, is needed for those degrees, many of those don't require a significant amount of chemistry or physics, yet those are category A degree. So if you have that degree, you're automatically qualified to sit for this exam to become a patent agent. But then, you know, if you don't, but this, so then if you don't have one of the category A degrees, you have to demonstrate a whole bunch of physics or chemistry, um, which may be someone in, who had qualified through category A didn't even necessarily have. So it's just very inconsistent. Um, and I think that it really focuses on these hard sciences that women are not equally represented within. 
Um, and so while it's gender neutral on its face, I think it has some, you know, impact um, based on, you know, the statistics of what, you know, what kind of science women are more inclined to participate in. So, you know, also that it seems like these category A methods of qualifying for uh, the patent bar seem awfully formalistic in terms of which degrees qualify and which degrees don't. Um, so if, how do you think the patent office ought to think about qualifications based on the degree alone? And sort of how might we go about expanding those categories to encompass more degrees that would also have the kind of relevant scientific background that seemed to be important? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if I have the perfect answer to this, um, but, you know, I think especially now it's 2020, I don't know how frequently the, the patent office has reviewed and updated these. And I, I believe actually the director, Iyanku, mentioned recently that they haven't reviewed these criteria in a number of years. So they're significantly outdated. But then even beyond that, innovation is so different now than how it was when these requirements were set up. Um, people learn science in so many different ways and untraditional ways or not, sorry, non-traditional ways. Um, they don't just learn how to do science in the classroom anymore. Um, people learn from, you know, doing their own inventions and tinkering and patenting their own inventions, but maybe they have a degree in, you know, psychology or sociology, um, but, and, but they know the patent process. And so they know how to be an effective patent practitioner, at least with a certain number of inventions. You know, I certainly think that I have no problem with the USPTO being some sort of gatekeeper. I think, you know, um, writing a complex small molecule uh, patent application definitely requires some chemistry knowledge. Um, I can attest to that as a chemist that, you know, my chemistry background is significantly important for certain application types. But um, there's so many different things, um, different innovations happening that even me as a practitioner or as, yeah, as a licensed practitioner, I, you know, will touch stuff um, that falls sort of within the realm of chemistry, but that my chemistry background doesn't really necessarily lend itself to. Um, so I don't know if I know exactly how the USPTO should restructure everything. You know, me, I think I offer three suggestions, you know, expanding the number of degrees in category A, just kind of doing a hard look at what kind of degrees maybe have gotten through through category B in the past and consider add, adding those to category A. Um, or, you know, I also suggest, you know, removing some of these undue burdens uh, for people who need to go through category B, such as like the sequencing or timing or grades that you need to have in these multiple physics or chemistry credits. Um, and then C, my third suggestion was to um, do an apprenticeship. So similar to kind of the role I had before I became a patent agent, um, I was a technical specialist. And most, you know, IP boutiques have people within these roles uh, who basically do the same job. They're just not uh, licensed yet to do it on their own. So they can't sign the papers that are submitted to the patent office. So, you know, maybe someone could come into a law firm that doesn't necessarily have the specific degree that's going to make them patent bar eligible under the current standards, uh, but they can be trained up and they have, you know, enough scientific acumen that they can 
you know, grasp the inventions, to work with the inventors to better understand their innovations, um, and then work with the patent attorneys at their firms to, you know, learn the practice, learn the trade and learn how to, you know, the art of drafting claims and things like that, um, that are so not at all related to science. Um, and yeah, so I just think there's a lot of different ways they could look at this. Um, I, yeah, you know, I have one colleague who uh, has a biomechanical engineering degree from Stanford, and she, biomechanical engineering is not a category A degree. So she did not qualify. She had to go through category B. Um, and one of the biggest things I think about this field is that it's not something you go to your undergraduate education thinking, oh, I'm going to become a patent attorney. Like, no, most people who go into science are like, oh, I'm going to be a scientist. I want to be a doctor or things like that. Um, so they don't necessarily think ahead of time, like, oh, I need to take these sorts of credits so that I qualify to become a patent agent or a patent attorney. So she went and became, you know, became a biomechanical engineer and then later wanted to take the patent bar exam, but it's not a category A degree. So, um, Often, I think with many people, is this is often a second career, second or third, um, often not the first. So she had to go back several years in the past to pull up class catalogs uh, to show that the courses she took were for majors only and were taken sequentially and met all these different requirements for category B just to prove that her biomechanical engineering degree from Stanford, you know, gave her the qualifications to do this job. So one of the things you mentioned in the article, which I found quite astonishing, is just how kind of weirdly arbitrary and mechanical this category A um, uh, screening really is. I mean, you observe that the name of the degree has to be exactly the same as the name of the listed degree in category A or else it doesn't qualify. And it just seems to me like as a scientific layperson, I mean, wouldn't we just want it to be the same kind of degree? I mean, like it's not like the patent office is going out there, like setting criteria for the degrees themselves. It just seems weird to require that schools call it what, what they call it. Um, and, and, And then I also couldn't help but wonder, like, are there, particular examples of degrees that are not included or categories of degrees that are not included that you think really ought to be and that might have a positive impact? Yeah, so totally agree that they seem very arbitrary. Um, And like I say in the paper, a lot of the times, you know, if you don't, if you have, like I said, we'll go back to the biomechanical example. If you have a biomechanical engineering degree, it's very, very likely that you qualify through category B, even if you don't get in through category A. So you know, while it's not, um, you know, you're not precluded from, you know, entering the patent bar, obviously, it just makes it so much more difficult. And it's very cumbersome. And I know many people who have tried several times to argue uh, why, you know, their degree doesn't match exactly these, this language, um, unsuccessfully for the patent office. So it just, it doesn't really make much sense. I just wish there was a little bit more consistency, or at least some clarity or, uh, you know, um, transparency about what they're actually looking for. And then with respect to um, the, yeah, matching exactly. So that's one thing that a lot of people know about is biology is accepted, but biological sciences is not a category A degree. I have no idea where that came from or, you know, what the rationale of the patent office was when they made that rule. 
Um, but you know, they seem, it seems like they really are stuck sticking to these category A degrees. Um, but to me, I don't know, and I'm a chemist and I've taken biology classes. I don't know what the difference, the fundamental difference between a biology degree is and a biological sciences degree. And to that point, a lot of universities will name their degree programs, whatever they want to name them. And I think as innovation is diversifying, um, universities are trying to diversify their programs in order to attract more people or, you know, whether it's to, you know, um, you know, deal with some of these gender issues, like getting women into their programs from the start, they're kind of change, diversifying their programs and giving them new names to kind of make them stand out and get more people in their programs um, to begin with. So I think as universities do that, it's going to cause problems uh, further along as we go down the road with people who don't have these exact degrees. Um, and of course, like I said, you know, I'll, I'll say it again, uh, those people that have those degrees may still qualify through category B. Uh, but again, it's just cumbersome um, for people, especially who this is a second degree or second career third career, fourth career, who have to go back years and years and years to pull course catalogs together to meet all these requirements. Um, you're going to lose a lot of people on, along the way who maybe um, would love this job, but just like don't have the abilities to pull those documents together or don't have the time or the resources to do that. Um, and I feel like those people, uh, you know, the people who are the busiest and raising families and things like that are women. Um, and women, you know, if you know, some people say, oh, you can go back to school to get, uh, go to a community college to get those requirements. But, it's, you know, if you're a woman with children and a family working a full-time job, you're not going to be able to go back reasonably to school to get credits uh, just just to do this job. So I think there's a lot of barriers there uh, for women and other minorities who maybe just don't have those resources. What kind of arguments, if any, has the patent office advanced for applying these categories, especially category A, in the way you describe with this kind of rigidity? Is there a reason why they're sticking to this or is it just kind of because that's the way we've always done it? Yeah, you know, in my research, I didn't find a ton of explanation from, you know, the patent office's side in defense of these uh, requirements. Um, I think it's, they've been very um, elusive with kind of the, the rationale um, for some of these. And, but I think with the current uh, chatter, um, you know, from this article and from, you know, the, the letter that the senators recently wrote to the patent office, um, I think that they are, you know, Director Yanku has admitted that they haven't looked at these criteria in a while and are committed to uh, taking a second look um, and reconsidering some of these. So I'm hopeful uh, that, that they'll reconsider, you know. Um, I think I mentioned at one point in the article that, you know, back in maybe the early 2000s, they someone had suggested doing an apprenticeship model because they have done that in the past. I found some evidence that at least for some time in the 90s, and then, of course, way back before the, the patent bar, these requirements were established before you had to even take an exam to become a patent agent. Um, when they, it was just basically an apprenticeship model, you demonstrated your ability and then you could become one. But that was back, you know, way long ago. Um, but at least in the 90s, they did a little bit of apprenticeship. And I know that when someone asked that question about bringing them back in the 2000s, the patent office just said, oh, we looked back to, you know, 
50 or like 100 years ago or something like that. And they said it was too hard. It was too cumbersome and things like that. But, you know, that just was completely like it was a hand waving. They just kind of toss it aside without really giving it any real consideration. Um, you know, state bars do that. California, a number of states will do an apprenticeship model. Uh, you know, I think it's really interesting to look at these issues uh, from the COVID-19 perspective and the bar privileges that have been passed out in several states. Um, so I think it, it works and we've shown that it works in different um, fields within law. So I don't see why it wouldn't work here. Well, so Mary, the, the reaction to this paper has been really interesting, exciting, and I imagine in some cases a little frustrating. I wonder if you could talk about that and sort of your experience of that reaction and your thoughts on kind of what's happened surrounding your paper and the broader conversation in which it participates. Yeah, sure. It's been, it's been a whirlwind. Um, so just for some quick background, I wrote this piece for class. I just, you know, I just wanted an A. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously it's something I'm passionate about, but I never, never in a million years expected it to be published, let alone read by anyone, let alone all the other stuff that's come from it. So, you know, it's very exciting for me. I'm a law student. I, this is the first attempt I ever made at publishing anything. So um, yeah, it's been a whirlwind to say the least. Um, so once, so as I was writing this, my professor who I wrote it for in the class encouraged me to publish. Um, he thought, you know, it was a poignant issue very timely issue. Um, so he gave me a lot of encouragement and I posted a draft of it on uh, social sciences research network, SSRN. Um, and eventually once it got through the SSRN re review uh, process, maybe like a month after I posted it, um, uh, it was, you know, became public or released or, you know, so a, I think a law 360 a uh, journalist who maybe had his uh, key buzzwords turned on for SSRN found it and wrote a story about it with, uh, unbeknownst to me. I had no idea um, that was happening. And then from that, you know, I got a handful of uh, emails from people just, you know, hey, I read your paper. Like, this is great. Thanks for writing this. You know, I relate to this a lot. Um, and then, you know, maybe a few weeks after I posted, I got an email from uh, one of the offices of the senators on the IP subcommittee, Senator Hirono, um, and I talked to her counsel about it. And he, you know, was like, oh, I think this is, you know, right up her alley. And I think what she'll, you know, I think she might, you know, think, look into it and write a letter to the patent office to look into this issue, which was insane. I mean, I could have never expected that to happen. Um, so, you know, I worked back and forth with him and her office. Uh, to draft a letter. They wrote one, uh, drafted a letter and I kind of just reviewed it and then they sent it off. And when they sent it off, he sent me a copy and I had seen that uh, Senator Coons and Senator Tillis signed on, which was super exciting to have more uh, senators kind of join in this push. Um, and then from there, of course, I got, you know, once that was public, you know, there's a handful of criticism that comes along with it. But I think um, overall, this I've gotten so much support. Um, I'm just you know, I'm not the first person to ever push on this issue. Um, I'm just glad that, you know, it's finally getting the attention it deserves after so many people have kind of tried to uh, make the USPTO consider these issues. Um, I'm glad that it's finally getting this attention. Um, and kudos to all the people before me that have pushed on this. Um, there's so many people and in, in my research came across people who've sent letters and 
written other articles about, you know, Sarah Burstein, for example, is very passionate about the, the design patent bar. Uh, so in order, you know, just as an aside, in order to do design patents, you have to meet these same criteria. Um, so if you're an industrial designer, you have a, de a degree in design of some sort, you cannot, and I doubt those degrees require any chemistry or physics. So unless you go back to school, you're never going to be able to prosecute design patents. So um, a lot of people have pushed on this before me, and I'm just really glad it's getting the attention it deserves. And hopefully some change will come from it. But it's been quite a couple of months of, you know, such a whirlwind. I never expected this. Well, it's very exciting and, and well-deserved, and I'm glad to see that it's a conversation that's being engaged in at the level that it is. Um, I wanted to return to some of the things you were just talking about at the end of your last comment, where you talked, for example, about you know design patents, which you know a lot of people don't even know about, but are you know, a significant part of the patents that the patent office issues every year, and the very kind of idea of technical expertise. I thought it was really helpful when you observed that, you know, having a science background is really helpful and important with respect to particular kinds of really mm -hmm. technical uh, patent applications. But geez, there's so many different kinds of patents out there, some of which really aren't all that technical at all. Part of me can't help but wonder, do we really need to have this technical requirement for people to prosecute patents in the first place? Or could self-sorting and kind of clients choosing people who specialize in particular areas do all that work for us? I think that's a great point. Um, I think there's so much weight given to um, maybe some more of these more complex, these small molecules or these, um, you know, the biotech, the antibody, antibody formulations, things like that. Um, because I think those are the, the things that make headlines. Those are the, the huge clients, the big pharma companies, um, and things like that. But I agree, like those, those companies, you know, know what they need in a patent attorney, and they're going to seek out someone with that, with that technical background who has the bandwidth to, to write those applications and handle those matters. Um, but I agree, there's so many other things out there, you know, app design, um, you know, a lot of things like, you know, I'm not in that space. So I can't really speak to, um, you know, a number of issues with software and the, the 101 issues um, that are raised um, with respect to, you know, what is patentable at the end of the day, in terms of software and computer science and things like that. But, um, you know, I do think that you have a point that, you know, clients know their technology best, and they have the ability to seek out, you know, the people who have the ability to do what they need them to do. And, you know, I, I think, I, I think that's a great point. And I hadn't really even considered that. I think that part of the reason we get so bogged down on these criteria is because people think of the big money making inventions. Um, when if you just go to the patent office's website and look at, you know, the recent patents that have been issued, some of them, like you mentioned, are have no technical, no serious technical, you know, like anything about it that, that super would require a chemistry degree or require a mechanical engineering degree or, you know, those sorts of things. So I think that's a great point. Um, I think we need to expand the way we think about innovation generally away from just being, you know, traditional science. Um, 
And if we do that, uh, I think there's, we can find some new ways to kind of uh, bring in more women, bring in more minorities, diversity of thought, um, all sorts of ways of diversifying the patent bar. Yeah, well, I, mean, I was really struck by an anecdote that you told about the woman who invented Spanx and her journey to patenting her, her invention. Because as you say, she just couldn't find anyone who she felt comfortable speaking to about the invention she wanted to patent and ended up prosecuting it pro se, getting the patent issued, and then being quite successful with that with that patent um, and, and her business more generally. And it struck me as sort of part and parcel with a lot of the arguments that I've seen Sarah Burstein make in the design patent sphere, which, you know, it seems to me that like excluding people with a design background in particular from the patent bar means that we actually are systematically eliminating like design experience from the patent bar in ways that might not be desirable for development of the law in that area. Yeah. I mean, I think if the goal is to have high quality patents come out of the patent and trademark office by excluding people who specialize in design, I think you're necessarily, you know, um, giving up some of that quality uh, in, in some way, you know, and, 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 you know, excluding people who have the most knowledge about that from really progressing that design patent sphere even further. Well, so Mary, in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you hope happened next. Do you, do you anticipate uh, moves being taken on this by the patent office? And what do you hope that they do? I sure hope so. Um, you know, I've heard from a lot of people who have pushed on this in the past that this is the fur- the most attention they, they have seen it it get. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm very new, relatively speaking to this career. Um, and obviously, this is something I'm very passionate about. And I will continue to talk about it as long as people will listen to me. Um, but so I'm hopeful, you know, I think that the director has already kind of verbally committed to reviewing these issues. Um, within, I think there was a seminar within the past couple of weeks that he did with Senator Hirono. Um, that he verbally did commit to looking into these issues. And then I did see the patent office recently um, put out a notice for comment about not necessarily this issue specifically, but just in general of uh, getting more inclusion and innovation. Um, Like the patent office has already acknowledged and done a lot to try to get more women inventors um, involved, uh, but not so much women patent practitioners or minority patent practitioners. So you know, I think this is in line with their current push. Um, so I'm really hopeful that this is just kind of the very beginning and that a lot of other people, smart people with other ideas other than just the three that I propose can come forward um, and have, you know, people actually listen because now that people are talking about this issue. Um, and I think there's so many other ways that I could never even imagine um, that we could really solve some of these problems and think about innovation and patent system and, you know, what what the goals are at the end of the day and um, find other ways to still embrace those same goals, but, um, you know, think about it, make it more modern and think about um, different ways to get there. So. Awesome. Well, Mary, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your paper and talking to you about it. I'm thrilled that it's had such an impact already. And I hope we see some positive change. Same. Thanks, Brian.
Well now, frantic one, settle back in your rockers, cause it's time for another story. This time Uncle Jazzboy's gonna lay a little history on you cats. I'm gonna tell you how the airplane came about. Well, way back in 1903, B.D., before Dizzy, two brothers cut out from Woody and were doing a bicycle act in Dayton, Ohio. They were billed as Wilbur and Orville Wright, and in bicycle circles, these cats were considered mighty big wheels. In other words, a couple of real hubcaps. Then one early bright... The two brothers took off. They decided to fall by the Corn Exchange Bank to exchange some. On the way, they were peddling a groovy four-beat when Orville said, Dig me, Will. No hands. And Orville took off at a wild tempo down the asphalt. Then, pressing his luck, he tried to make a turn. But the poor little two-wheeler hadn't been turned on in weeks, and it flipped. Orville tried to fake his way through, but when one of the tires blew a clinker, he did a one-and-a-half with a full twist. And uh, she wasn't bad at that. Climbing out from the spokes, he spake. Man, these bicycles are the lowest. I'm hip, said Wilbur, but I can't see walking either. That heel and toe action is nowhere. You're so right, said Orville. But uh, what other way is there to go any place? At that moment, right on cue, a wild goose flew by overhead. Taking a gander at the goose, Wilbur said, Man, what a crazy way to get around. Why don't we do something like that? Orville picked up on the idea immediately, and the two brothers came on like Edison, started inventing like the coolest in their machine shop. Well, after three weeks, they'd finished the gig, and there in the center of the room was the result. It had feathers, it looked like a giant wild goose, and it sounded a little like Frankie Lane. But uh, after repeated tests, the brothers discovered that they had goof because it wouldn't fly. The very best they could get from it were uh, a couple eggs now and then. Well, for the second experiment, Orville came up with a weirdo. They borrowed a crazy cap with a propeller on it from a passing boy, and Orville cleverly installed a motor in the hat to turn the propeller. To test his brainchild, he tried the hat on Wilbur for size and started the engine. And quickly, Wilbur's head rose into the air. But uh, as his feet were still on the ground, this proved to be quite a drag, so experiment two was put in the Get Lost file. Well, it was the third try that made the history books for Wilbur and Orville. They decided to make it to Kitty Hawk because they heard the breeze there was the most. They were hoping that maybe the breeze would hit the wings and move the ship and bring the moolah back to them. So Orville wheeled out their wild contraption and Wilbur juiced up the tank. But after a few tries, that gizmo wouldn't get off the ground. So they poured some more juice and they tried and they made with the juice again and they tried again, but nothing. Well, finally, Orville, trying the hardest, putt-putted down the field once more, and Wilbur yelled at him, Hey, Dad, how about some more juice? And then from Orville came the now immortal words. He said, Save it, man. I'm flying. And flying he was, chums. Flying he was. Flying he was.